Welcome back to the interview series on the socioeconomic consequences of disruptive technologies by Rethinking Economics and Now. Today, we'll be focusing on how disruptive technologies are influencing not only the economy, but also our society. And for that, I'm honored to be able to introduce two world-class experts that have had an enormous influence on me. Firstly with me today is Andrew McAfee, who is the co-founder and co-director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and a principal research scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He studies how disruptive technologies, digital technologies, are changing the world. Related to this, he has co-authored Race Against the Machine, The Second Machine Age, and Machine Platform Crowd. <laughs> Beautiful books, I have to say. Uh, with Eric Benjolson. And together with Eric Benjolson, he is also the only two people in the world who is both on the Thinkers 50 list for the world's top management thinkers and the political 50 list for group, sorry, of people transforming American politics. His most recent book is More From Less, how uh, this, this surprising story of how we learn to prosper while using fewer resources and what will happen next, which was published by Scribner in the fall of 2019. Secondly with me today is Cecil Hidalgo, who is a Chilean Spanish American schooler known for his contributions in economic complexity, data visualization, applied artificial intelligence. He currently leads the Center for Collective Learning at the Artificial and Natural Intelligence Institute in Aniti of the University of Toulouse. He is also an honorary professor at the University of Manchester and a visiting professor at Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. In 2010 and 2019, Professor Hidalgo led MIT's Collective Learning Group. Um, and he, prior to working at MIT, he was a research fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Professor Hidalgo is also the founder of DataWheel, an award-winning company specialized in the creation and distribution, uh, sorry, creation of data distribution and visualization systems. He is also the author of three, book, three books, Why Information Grows, The Atlas of Economic Complexity, and How Humans Judge Machines, Leather available both recently as a hardcover and for free online. The first question of the day is for Andy. I was hoping you could tell us more about your thinking on disruptive technologies in the economy. I was especially curious how this changed over the years. So could you tell us more about in 2011, you co-authored uh, co the Race Against the Machine and in 2016, the second machine age. So what is your thinking in these books and how has it changed over this period? Uh, Eric and I wrote this little book. It was a pamphlet really in 2011. We, we self-published it on Amazon. It was called, like you said, Race Against the Machine. And we wrote it because we had this at the time, just kind of a vague idea that we were living through one of these periods of very deep economic change, very deep societal change brought on by a surge of technological progress. And these don't happen very often. The profound ones don't happen very often. Uh, I think everybody knows one, one of those led to the Industrial Revolution when we finally unlocked all of the energy in the world's fossil fuels, that really did put humanity on a different trajectory. That trajectory kind of continued about a century ago with electrification and the internal combustion engine and another set of technologies that really did change the way that we live. And Eric and I started to come to the conclusion that we were witnessing another one of those surges of technology, this time brought on by digital technology. And if the previous generations of technology let us massively increase the power of our muscles and escape the limitations of muscle power, we think what's going on now in the second machine age is that we're overcoming the limitations of our mental power. We're just, we're, 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 we're able to harness so much more 
computing capability to help us do tough mental things. And I think that basic thesis has held up pretty well. And I'm not even surprised anymore by being surprised. In other words, when I see a headline about some crazy weird breakthrough in AI or a drone that gets smaller and smaller with a better and better camera on it and can do crazy things, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm super impressed by this specific thing. I'm less impressed by the general trend because I do think that we are in an, in an age of astonishment because of technological progress. And I think those astonishments are going to keep happening to us. And how has it changed with Machine Platform Crowd, which you released two years later? And I think it, that there are a lot of teams that are the same, but what for you differ there? And could you also expand a bit more on how this is changing the economy? Uh, Eric and I wrote Machine Platform Crowd because we had this really interesting experience after we wrote a book called The Second Machine Age, which came out in 2014. We found ourselves having a lot of very interesting conversations with people who run large organizations. And they kept on saying to us some version of, I believe what the story you're telling me, now what do I need to do differently? How do I think about running my company, running my organization differently? And Eric and I said, look, we're, we're business school guys. This is what we're supposed to do. So Machine Platform Crowd was kind of an applied book where we tried to bring together some concepts from computer science, some concepts from economics and say, this is the nature of the change that is coming. If you wanna successfully navigate that change, here are some things that you should keep in mind. And Professor Hidalgo, how does these ideas of Andy relate to your work? And I was especially curious in that in the context of how humans judge machines, your newest book. Yeah. So um, I think, uh, first of all, I agree with what Andy has said and, and has produced in, in his work. I, I agree that we're in an in a age of transformation, you know, uh, but I think my work has been a little bit different in that even though that transformation is there and I do believe that technology is an important agent of change, Geographically, when we look at it, it is very uneven where it happens. And there is that question, therefore, that if technology is this agent of change that is transforming society, and if knowledge in principle is something that can be copied uh, infinitely, or what, why you know, is it so unevenly distributed? And why you know, are these transformative events concentrated in space and they spread so slowly. So a lot of my work has actually focused on like the social implications of technology as well, you know, how technology or knowledge transforms society, but also I'm trying to understand why it happens in, in some places and not others, you know? And the work on economic complexity in part is a way to kind of like acknowledge that reality by using some math that, that helps you take the idea of a production function in economics and say, well, you know, instead of thinking that capital and labor are the factors can we learn the factors directly from the spatial distribution of data? And if we do that, can those learned factors tell us a better story about you know, why there is geographic unevenness in economic outcomes? And, and that's a little bit of what we did then. Um, but more recently, I've been now focusing on work on also trying to understand how this technology is being perceived because uh, through the work that I did in economic complexity first, I engaged in the development of tools and I created a company, you know, that creates data distribution systems. And I started to, to go through a different path, you know, and the academic always likes to comment on the world, you know, but building stuff, it's a very different story. And as I started to build stuff, I started also to worry about how people engage with the things that you build. And I, and I started to, to realize that um, if people reject the things that you build, not because they're bad or not because they don't work, but sometimes because 
they have a different perception of reality or they're coming from a different place, you're gonna fail anyway. So I became interested on how people perceive technology, what shapes those perceptions. And that it started to happen at also at a time in which AI was growing and the backlash against AI started to grow. And when that happened, I saw, well, there is a huge gap here because nobody's asking themselves the question, am I even judging this technology fairly? You know, uh, are we just kind of like bashing on it because it made a mistake? Or are we bashing on it even when it makes less mistakes than humans? And, and I thought that there was kind of like an intuition that that might be happening, but there was no data that, that we could use to, to grasp onto that. So that's why we embarked in this, like it was almost like a four year journey of collecting data. It's more than 80 controlled experiments that we run to write this book and to try to understand, you know, how people perceive technology with a hope to understand, you know, how they would accept it how they would adopt it. And then also what these lessons about how we perceive technology tell us about how we perceive larger systems, you know, whether it is, you know, machines that are made of people like bureaucracies or, you know, machines that are made of parts like the ones that we usually tend to think of like machines. And, and I want to just highlight that, that Cesar is homing in on, I think the two most important questions that we need to get smarter about. Uh, the first one is exactly what he was just talking about. How do people judge machines, technologies, the, the, the systems, the tools that are presented to them? Because like we see, that judging does not always go as smoothly as we would like. I look at vaccine resistance in America and many countries around the world. And if we don't convince people of the factually correct things, these are incredibly important. These are incredibly safe. These are huge lifesavers. If we don't learn how to do that, we have a dire, dire problem. If we don't learn how to present powerful technologies like AI in a way that works for the people who will be um, using AI, be, be, the, be subject to AI's decisions, then we have a problem again. And we can get to some very, very uncomfortable, unpleasant places as societies if we don't do a good job of of presenting these, these tools, even if they're amazingly beneficial tools in, in, a, in, a, in a way that gets them accepted. It's a deep challenge. And the other one that he talked about, which I couldn't agree more with, is that uh, you know, te technology is incredibly widely available. The places in the world that are harnessing that technology, that are creating value from it, that are creating the companies that are so profoundly important in the world today, those are not evenly distributed. Those are very, very, very spiky. As I look at the evidence, they're getting spikier instead of more distributed over time. And there are reasons to worry about that. And so we better get insight on these two questions. Cesar, how do you see that? And I was especially curious on that from the complexity economics perspective. Well, you know, so on, on the one hand, you know, like, like knowledge is the thing that is hard to copy, you know, and, and, and we've learned that like knowledge is heavy. You know, uh, and it moves as people move and they form social networks. And those are very slow processes. You know, I've just moved to Europe. I'm starting to get to know people. Maybe in five or six or 10 years, I'm going to have an impact here. And it might be small. I'm just one person, you know, moving to a new place. You know? So that's one thing. But on the other hand, you know, what we have um, is that technologies in some way have this property that is that they're labor saving. You know, that's a little bit of kind of like the basics of technology, yeah? Like 
Why, why do you want technology? Because you can jump faster, you can lift things that are heavier, you know, and, and more and more, it's about saving time, you know, it's about kind of like being able to do more with less, as, as Andy puts in the title of, of his book. You know, now, when that happens, you know, because technologies are, are scalable, it means also that even though they're a source of wealth, they must be also a source of inequality, you know, because they allow few people to serve many, and if we take a more anthropological definition of money, money is just like a unit of favors that are exchanged. So how many favors do I owe you or you owe me? You know, that's how much money like you, you save or you have. And in that context, some people can make many people a favor. So Google is making many people the favor of like, hey, you wanna find something on the internet? Come to my little box, you can do it. I do that favor for you. And then there's tons of people that are paying to show their stuff on that box to them. And they have a super scalable business model that would have been impossible in the era of the newspapers or that would have been impossible in other communication technologies. So, so that also puts us kind of like in this very awkward position in which knowledge is growing. The ability to accumulate knowledge in an applied setting, like to create products, no, it's very spiky, it concentrates, you know, not only because of knowledge diffusion problems, also because of economic problems, you know, it's hard to compete also, even if you can figure out how to do it, you know, it's going to be very hard to kind of like get market share and, and grow and, and, and keep on hiring people and, and convincing advertisers, let's say if you're a search engine to advertise with, with you know, that, that go, not with Google that is already dominant in the market. You know? and, and as that happens, you start kind of like getting, you know, like these forces that, that, that push you know, inequality. And I think that brings us to the other question, which is uh, people start having very different outcomes. They don't see technology as this thing that is here to kind of like save time, save effort and make the world richer. They see it as something that a few people get to control and, and that benefits them. And I think there's some reason to see that. And in that context also, they start to become skeptic about it because their place in the world is, is not that great, you know, they're in a situation that is difficult. And in that context, I think we, we get all of this skepticism, you know, what it is that, you know, is Bill Gates is trying to put a chip through the vaccine and all of this idiocy. I think they come through places of discomfort that at the same time are created by these technologies that are here to make the world better, but for which is very different, uh, difficult to spread those benefits you know, in a way that at least would, would, would be considered fair by, by many people, you know? And, and I think that's kind of like the tension, you know, that technology itself creates the, own, the, the inequality that limits its own adoption, you know, that, that creates a society that, that wants to reject it, you know? And, and that's yeah. sort of like, an, like a very interesting, you know, vicious circle that, that we, we have here. Now, this is really interesting because I get to disagree with Cesar a little bit here. Okay. I, I agree with a lot of, Cesar, what you just said, uh, and there are there are dimensions of inequality that are clearly increasing in many parts of the world, and they're clearly really really important. We, you and I, would both agree wealth and income inequality is something we should keep our eyes on, and we need it's a challenge. There are other really important dimensions of inequality that are collapsing around the world, and where the the, the fortunate and the people at the base of the pyramid are actually coming closer together in a way that we've never seen before. Uh, my favorite examples of this are health um, uh, inequality. So if you look at some of the things that we care yes. about most around the world with health, if you look at child mortality or maternal mortality or access to drinking water, we have never ever seen 
a greater convergence of those outcomes than we are seeing right now around the world. I graph some of this in More From Less. And I have trouble thinking about any kind of any global inequality that's more important than health inequality. And that inequality is collapsing around the world. Going along with that, this unease with technology that Cesar was doing such a great job of describing, I think this is largely a rich world phenomenon. I think it is largely a phenomenon of uh, people who were used to be in the, the, the middle class in the rich world who are correctly seeing some real challenges to their livelihoods. I think the elite conversation in the rich world that Cesar and I are both lucky enough to be part of, in general, that is a sharply negative uh, conversation. If you go ask people, I would say almost anywhere in the bottom half of the global income range, what do you think of technology? They will say, it's fantastic. Please, get, please, we want more as quickly as we can possibly get it. So I, I don't want this, th these discussions about the negative consequences are important. I think on a global basis, they're actually kind of narrow. Yeah, so let, let me agree and disagree a little bit too. So I, I agree, you know, that there are important forms of inequality that, that are being reduced and the ability that we've had to generate, you know, growth and wealth to ex get people out of poverty over the last 20, 30 years is remarkable. So I agree with, with you and with Max Roser and with Steve Pinker and with Hans Rosling. And, and I'm a big believer also, like um, part of my research has focused so much in growth because I also believe that it's not just about distribution. It's about that, that economic growth that comes from technology that lifts people up. You know? But at the same part time, I, I, I engage a little bit with the psychology of the phenomena. And, and I see it, you know, both in rich and in poor countries, you know, like just to give you an example of like a rich country example of, you know, people being narrow-minded. A very good friend and colleague of mine, you know, a few days ago, actually, you know, comes with, uh, to me when I was in the US packing with, with a box that he wanted me to bring to Europe, you know, for someone, you know, and I said, put it on the mail. Well, this person, uh, mid-30s, American, very towny type, didn't know that USPS sent packages outside the US because it was, it is USPS, it's for the US. You know? So you can have kind of like that narrow-mindedness depending on how much you've seen of the world. And I think the, what the point I'm trying to make there is that the, the perception that people is gonna have depends on the opportunities that they have. So maybe 30, 40 years ago, I would agree with you that the condition for many people was worse, you know, but their ability to be aware of what was going on in different parts was also diminished. And as those conditions improved, for instance, the social phenomena that we've seen in Chile a lot, you know, like recently and, and the social protest and the eruption, it was, you know, it could be told as, you know, like people in, in, in extreme poverty, but in reality, a big part of the social phenomena was people that, were first generations that they went to the university, they told them this idea that, well, if you work hard, you educate yourself, you are not gonna be like the previous generation. And they find themselves, you know, like graduating from college, having jobs that don't pay better or, or in comparison or, or, or and, 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 a, and a very difficult you know, life with a lot of competition of people in a similar situation, but they're much more aware of you know, the world. They're much more educated. They have ability to understand things. So I do think that those two things in a way counterbalance each other because as the world gets better, you know, but also as our perceptions get wider, you're able to kind of like see things 
in which you're going to perceive forms of inequality that before were invisible to you because you didn't leave the town, you didn't leave the village, you didn't know that USPS, you know, mailed abroad. <laughs> so, so I, I agree with you on the fact, you know, but I do think that the perception has a component in which, you know, uh, that runs in the opposite direction as, as people become more aware, you know, uh, even in, in the less developed countries, they also uh, start seeing kind of, you know, the systemic difference that sometimes they were invisible to them. And it's a reality that is more complex and difficult to accept sometimes. I was also very curious for you, Andy, basically on how you see that, but also in relation to some other older trends and, and, and uh, basically graphs we're seeing. So, for instance, Piketty's work, of course, basically on the increase in income inequality, but also the decoupling that we're seeing of productivity and wage growth since the 1980s. How are you seeing that then in the context of these technologies? There's there's a huge amount of debate among the smartest economists that I follow and that I try to learn from about exactly how pronounced those phenomena are. Everybody who I follow agrees that inequality has been rising in most countries. You know, America is a clear example. Most people agree that there has been a divergence between productivity and pay, at least in America, for some kinds of workers. And it's pretty clear that more of the income is going up to the top. I forget if it's the top, you know, 10 or 20 or 25 percent of earners, but in general, there's kind of a group that's doing fine and pulling away and a, another group that's holding steady or in some cases even falling behind. These are absolutely things that we need to worry about. I'm even more worried about what Cesar talked about first. The, the geographic distribution of our economy is changing. It's changing in the direction of concentration. And uh, I have trouble telling a happy story where a bigger and bigger percentage of the GDP of America or the Netherlands comes from a smaller and smaller number of hectares. That, that, there's a problem with that for the very simple reason that there are people living on those uh, pieces of land that are getting left behind, that are not economically viable anymore. And Cesar and I both know that as a, as a rule, economists are not, um, they don't lack confidence. They think they have a very good toolkit to analyze problems. They think they have a good toolkit to address problems. When it comes to this problem of increasing geographic inequality in economic activity, most of the honest economists I know say our toolkit, the things that we know work, our toolkit is not very good for addressing that problem. And, and figuring out what to do about that and spreading back out the economic growth, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of activity, Mm. And while all that's going on, our economy just gets spikier and spikier. So let, let me add something to that. You know, so I've, I've been advocating for the last 15 years and, 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 and working on trying to get economies that are less developed to go into knowledge intense sectors. You know, the product space is like, well, what's the best way to climb that complexity ladder? Economic complexity is about like, well, you know, what is the knowledge intensity of your economy and how you can measure it and so forth. But uh, during that time also, you know, I, I became an entrepreneur. I have a company with 26 people and so forth. And I must admit that a lot of the lessons that I learned about, you know, business and economics, I learned it by being a CEO and a manager, you know. Uh, and this is a lesson that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is, I think, very important. Uh, and uh, this lesson is about the fact that knowledge-intense economies can be very cruel. Let me tell you what I mean by that. No? So uh, let's say you have a relatively uh, not knowledge intense sector, 
like a fruit packing plant. Okay, so there's a conveyor belt, there are boxes, there's pitches, the pitches need to be put into boxes, they need to be checked and so forth. And you have many people that are putting pitches in boxes. Now, what's the marginal cost of training someone to become part of that job, to including someone? So think of it now from the point of inclusion. So someone comes in or, or there is a surge in demand and you need to bring someone else into the line. And sure, there might be some, some protocols of safety and hygiene that need to be you know, performed, but you can probably have a person you know, working on that assembly line, maybe within a week, maybe within a day. You know? Now, I run a software company in which we have a stack of software that we've developed over eight years that is extremely you know, complex and it has its own flavor of language. When we hire people, it takes us three to six months for these people to be able to commit code. It always has to be reviewed by others. And the problem that I face as a manager is that there are, for example, guys that are good developers, but that I hate that they hate teaching others. And when the new people come in, they say, I, this guy is bothering me. I don't want to explain him how this stuff works. I'm getting frustrated because I have to correct their work. And, and, and a big source of stress and tension in the company is that we need to hire people, but the ones that are in, they don't want to spend time teaching them. And if nobody teaches them, even though these guys come with a master's or with a six-year degree and they know how to program, they're not going to be able to be productive. So the knowledge-intense sectors, they have that problem in which it's much costlier to add someone to an operation, you know? And, and it becomes very cool because you can have operations that are very scalable, you know, Instagram, you know, had, you know, like 13, 14 people at the moment that, that they were already like, like, like a large company serving, you know, like, like millions and millions of users. But because of that, I find also a lot of friends of mine from college, you know, that went to college with me and, you know, they were not as lucky as I was struggling to join the labor market even though they're highly educated and highly good because the cutoff is really high because in this sector, when you're having someone, let's say that was want to be in charge of kind of like this database or the front end of this platform, whatever, it's, it's not as easy to integrate someone as putting pitches on boxes on the conveyor belt. So what I think it's happening right now is that we're moving to these knowledge intense sectors, to these cultural activities, you know, but these cultural activities have inherently this problem of onboarding. It's extremely costly onboarding. And that also, you know, generates another form of, you know, like rejection or displacement or, or lack of inclusion that we need to worry about because I think it's a structural. The more that we move to a knowledge intense sector, the higher the cost of onboarding, the higher the cost of onboarding, the more that, you know, onboarding causes stress and that people that are looking for a place might not be included, you know? So uh, in other words, you know, it seems that there's some good things about knowledge intense sector, but there's some things that, for example, we might have had in manufacturing, you know, in terms of inclusion that are really hard to replicate in this more knowledge intense economy. Andy, especially considering your work on these type of, of enterprises, how do you see this? Uh, which aspect of it? Well, especially basically on like digital uh, disruptive companies that are really working at this high the high intensity knowledge sector. I, I, I completely agree with what Cesar just said. For several decades after the end of World War II, our economies had a bottomless thirst for uh, relative for unskilled labor. And when I say unskilled, what I basically mean is not formally educated beyond a high, le uh, high level. And those jobs 
because they were relatively high productivity jobs on assembly lines and things like that, they could provide a, an unskilled person with a medium, uh, with a, a middle class income and the hope that their kids could become more educated, get higher skills, climb up the ladder that way. Those jobs, they still exist, but they're not as plentiful anymore because of these two huge forces of tech progress and globalization. So the middle class in the rich world is absolutely feeling squeezed and has been left out of a lot of the economic gains that have happened up the, uh, up the education ladder and even somewhat down the education ladder. And uh, we, we should not pretend that that's not the case. And to ask you a quick follow-up on that, how do you think that we can create a more inclusive society so to say, well, we can, this, this technology that we're describing, that it's to some extent creating this inequality can actually help with alleviating this inequality? The first person that won the Nobel Prize in economics was a countryman of yours. His name was Jan Tinbergen. And one of his great quotes was that um, inequality is a race between technology and education. Technology, like we've been talking about, tends to increase inequality, all other things being equal. The great leveler is to give people more skills. And over time, we have done, you know, the average skill level has gone up in most countries around the world. If that is not working really well, my first solution is to re-examine how we're educating people and do better at it. Uh, one line that I like to use all the time is that we're doing a great job of educating the kind of workers we needed 75 years ago. Okay, well, let's stop doing that. It's a more knowledge intensive economy. We need very different skills. We have some idea what those skills are. In addition, we're seeing a lot of innovation in educational approaches. Uh, we, um, Cesar, you know about things like um, 42, the school in France, like Lambda, where you share someone's income after they graduate with, a, with technical skills. I love these ideas. I don't know if all of them are going to work, but by all means, let's innovate on how we actually deliver skills to people. Can we do it more quickly? Can we do it from a lower base? Do we have to go through the, the classic educational path that we built up in the rich world in the post-war decades? Well, no, we don't. Let's go figure out what works and do more of that. Cesar, how are you seeing these things? And I was also curious on, especially for economic students, what do you think, what are the type of skills that they should get? And especially in the context of the topics we're discussing today, like disruptive technologies. Yeah, so um, let, let me address the, the first part of the question, you know, uh, which is, okay, so we have like these forces that are pushing inequality, like what, what to do about it? And I, I agree with Andy that you know education is important and should be promoted, but I do think that um, there are forces here at play that are extremely strong and and in some way you know, uh, invite us to think more creatively in in two directions. The first one is that during the last you know century and especially during the last 30, 40 years, we have been able to create solutions and business and technologies that are so scalable that they can serve billions with teams that are relatively small, that in that world, you know, expecting that everyone can be included, you know, uh, in the production side of the economy, you know, might be naive, but at the same time, there might be a lot of value of keeping people engaged on the consumption side of the economy. So if you have a homeless person in the US, which is a huge problem in many parts, I would argue that giving that person a UBI and having them be a consumer in the economy 
is better than having that person have no consumption power, you know, and be, you know, more of a burden on the system, be a person that kind of like gets disease, that, you know, it needs to be visited by social workers, you know, that, that, that you know, it's, it's in bad conditions and so forth. So I see more and more that as society progress, we might have to not achieve equality through some sort of redistribution system. I, I'm very capitalistic in many ways, and I do believe that, that, that uh, giving people the, the, the ability to you know, uh, own the fruits of what they produce and reinvest them, it's a really important freedom that needs to be protected. But I do think that you need to, in some way, ensure parts of society you know, from the ultimate ruin. You know, because the problem is that that's in a society that you don't have, you know, a, like good ways to stop that ruin from happening, that becomes an attractor. It's not a place that people bounce off from, you know. Once you have like no friends and you're in the street, nobody wants to even talk to you, you know, like you're, you're smelly and, and, you know, and, 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 and you look like someone that is scary. So, so you need to protect people from that ruin. So I do believe, you know, that things like UBI and, and, and so forth are going to have to be part of the solution, you know, and that the economy lives on the excess, it lives on top of that, you know, because nobody wants to be there and the ones that wants to be there, you know, well, let them be there, but let them be there with some dignity, you know, uh, and I, I think that's kind of like an important thing that, that we're going to like look at this century, I think that is going to become more and more a discussion. And I think we're gonna see that happening when we exit COVID because when COVID happened, you know, the economy was hit, but it was hit very differentially. Like I'm sure that Andy has done great. I've been doing, you know, well, you know, but there's, you know, I, I live here next to a, a plaza, the Plaza and George, full of restaurants that all closed except two, you know, and there's a lot of people that are having a very different reality right now, but we're not talking to them. And at some point, the COVID, you know, confinement, hopefully is going to end. People are going to start mixing again. And we're going to realize that the, the, the wedge between society grew even further. And there's a lot of people that had a very different experience of what 2020 and 2021 meant to them. And, and, and that pressure, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to affect politics in a way that it cannot do right now because people cannot congregate, because people cannot like, you know, express themselves in the, in the way that they can in a non-confinement state. So that's a little bit how I see it. I do see it as, as, as a more, you know, progressive form of Keynesianism that we're gonna need to adopt. You know, I do think that there is a world in which our supply side can be so strong that the information that people reveal through the acts of consumption, you know, it's enough to justify a minimum level of consumption that you wanna give them. Because when people consume, they inform you about what needs to be produced, what it's like, and so forth. Well, you know, that is something that I, I, I do think we're going to get to a point in which we're going to be so rich that the value of knowing what needs to be done or who likes what is going to be enough to justify a very basic income. So I'd love to come back as well to the education aspect. First, Andy, how do you see this? Uh, a bit differently than Cesar does. And I still hear a line from Eric, from Brynjolfsson, from my co-author, and he always says, does anyone think right now that there's a shortage of work that needs to be done? And to follow up on that, does anyone seriously think that there's a shortage of work that can only be done by human beings, where we don't have 
robots and AI that can do the work. And when I hear Eric phrase it that way, it becomes incredibly clear to me, the problem that we face is not a shortage of useful, um, societally beneficial work for human beings to do. We're in a very strange period right now because of the pandemic where we literally cannot be close to each other because there's this deadly disease going around. Great, we're, we're going to get past that. Let's, let's all assume that the vaccines appear to work spectacularly well. So we're gonna get back to a more normal economy. In that normal economy, is there any shortage of work that needs to be done? I think about the energy transition that we have to get through and that we have to get through very quickly. And I think about the jobs that would come if we were intelligent about that. I think of the, the poor job that we do in America of taking care of some of our most vulnerable populations and the work that could come out of that. So I am, I am not worried about not having enough work to go around and therefore needing a universal basic income. I'm worried about creating the right conditions so that people can get matched to the jobs and the work that need to be done and be part of that world of work, which I believe is actually incredibly important for a person's uh, dignity and sense of community and sense of belonging. Let me ask you a quick follow-up on that. Do you think that that everyone is able to do those jobs? Because I can imagine that that although we're seeing that far more people are getting university education and such, I can imagine that that, that, that AI is also to some extent creating more upper-level and lower-level jobs. So do you think that that's, that's an issue or that it's not an issue at all? It's an issue, but think about jobs, again, that, that AI and that robots are nowhere near doing, nowhere near. Uh, take caring for a room of 12 children. You think an AI is going to do that anytime soon without terrifying the children? Absolutely not. Fixing a bridge that's in need of repair. I assure you, we have no robots anywhere near deployment that can do that. Installing a wind farm or a solar farm. We, we simply don't have technologies that can do that. This is why I say that there's no shortage of work that needs to be done. And maybe in the crazy distant sci-fi future, maybe you will live to see an economy that is incredibly productive and just doesn't need a lot of human labor as an input. I think that's plausible at some point in the future. That is not where we are now. It's not where we're going to be in five or 10 years. Yes, I would agree that there's a lot of work that needs to be done, you know, maybe for, Three billion people? I don't know if there's going to be like for seven. So, so I do think that there is kind of like, I, I don't disagree that there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done and that cannot be automated. I also see that there's a lot of people and that at the bottom, you know, getting hired, you know, it's, it's really hard, even at an okay wage with a high level of education. What I see right now, like shuffling even, like for example, in the software sector that, that, that lends itself to telecommuting, it's, you know, like a, like a big flight towards, you know, like, like middle and lower income countries that have, you know, good educational systems, but you can get an engineer for 2K a month instead of, you know, 150K a year. And, and even in that space, as people get educated, like the salaries, you know, like are, are quite depressed and it's easy to find people, you know? So like, at least the problem that I have is I have way more people that want to work with me or that want to do something that I can get to hire, you know, given the resources that are flowing through me at the moment. Uh, and, and I see kind of like that, 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 that scramble, you know? Um, so I agree that there's a lot of work to be done. I do think that there might be a, a, a differential and in that differential, you know, is, is where frustration is going to grow, you know, it's, it's because uh, 
It's not people that didn't try or didn't want to or didn't work hard. Like frustration comes from those that try and they didn't get the opportunities. I'm afraid that um, at least my intuition is that there's going to be a, an important difference there, like a big enough gap to become, you know, a, a problem. And to return also to something we were discussing earlier, the education aspect. So it seems that many of the topics we today are in the economics, uh, we discussed today are in the economics education, but quite a few aren't. So how do you think that we should include these, these aspects? For instance, complexity economics. Cesar, how do you see that? Should we include that the economics education in, which, in what ways? Economics education, or are you talking about education in society more in general? I, I think it's most interesting to first focus on the education specifically for economists. Education for economists. So I do think that, you know, um, I, I make some like, like general distinctions to kind of like help place different fields of thought within a context. On the one hand, you know, there is a big difference to me between the social science, you know, and the natural sciences in the objects of study, which is the following. You can go all of your life without knowing, you know, how quarks work, you know, and knowing nothing about nuclear physics. You know, and most people can go all of their lives, you know, without engaging with any of that. And natural sciences has a lot of that, you know, when you look at cell biology, genetics, you know, astrophysics, you know, but in the social sciences, we deal with things that people that are professionally trained or not have to deal with. Everybody participates of the economy and they, they see that there are periods that are better than worse, whether they have an understanding based on models or in empirically verified facts or just the stories of their grandpa, it's a different story. But, you know, there are fields, you know, that in some way participate in things that everybody kind of has an opinion on, you know, while nobody has or very few people have an opinion on quarks, a lot of people have an opinion on the economy, for sure. And the other field is ethics, you know, whether you are a professional philosopher trained on ethics or you are a normal person, you have been asking yourself questions about is it right or wrong to do this all your life, you know. And, you know, there are intuitions that are formed around it. So in that context, the fields that deal, you know, in these spaces in which the non-experts are always going to have an opinion, I think they're in, in an uncomfortable position, of course, because they're always going to kind of like get non-expert input. But at the same time, they have kind of like a responsibility to engage with these different, you know, schools of thoughts and ideas of other people that have been thinking about that from a different perspective, you know? And, and if you think about it like the social sciences, it's, it's all built kind of like on verticals of different models of what matters about the world, you know, like e economics and political science, you can think, well, in economics, we try to think about the world as a collection of rational agents. In political science, we try to think about the world as battles of power between individuals, but you, you can all have micro, meso and macro in both of them, you know, uh, because you kind of like subscribe to maybe different ways to think about human behavior and collective behavior, but the object of study has a big overlap and has, you know, inputs that, um, that are shared. So that's why there's also kind of like all these, these cross, there's people that go from economics to talk about institutions, and there's people that come from political science to say how like institutions are affecting the economy and, and whatnot. So I think in that context, it is important to, to stop the identity academics that we now suffer in which 
there is this shared subject, which is society, there are all of these approaches to look at it from academia. And there's all of these people also outside academia that in some way they have a valid lived experience from where there can be insight, there can be wisdom that, that, that we can draw on. You know? And how can we you know, um, make sure that we continue advancing knowledge in the best possible way without using our quest for the search of knowledge as a signaling mechanism to try to uh, tell to others to which academic community we belong or we identify with. And I think that to me is kind of like the, the, the big challenge because in the social sciences, it's much more of that kind of like positioning that within a larger topic, you know, people kind of like try to signal that they belong to a community while in the natural sciences, maybe because, you know, we're in a topic that, hey, if we're not studying it, nobody else would. You know, nobody is thinking about this stuff on their day to day. It's like stuff that had to be discovered by like you know smashing atoms together sometimes. You know, then uh, there is kind of like a more of a fixation on the object of study, no matter the perspective, than on the perspective you know uh, itself. And for Andy, basically, I was very curious in your take on this, but also especially basically what I think it also is that that basically the different disciplines have to combine it and such that a lot of economists will be not that familiar with disruptive technologies and they will have, you will get like a basic understanding in your education, but it will not focus on it, like really what will be the effects, basically what are the AI scientists saying and such. So what, what should they know about that and how do you see it in the education? I'm actually not a formally educated economist, so I'm not going to opine on the education over there. What I can say, though, is the the economics papers that I read, I find absolutely fascinating. And the methods in the discipline have changed just in the time that I've been following the literature. The empirical toolkit has gotten a lot bigger to investigate questions. The scope of the discipline has increased a lot. And I read a lot of, you know, fascinating stuff about the economics of crime or about algorithmic bias and fairness. These are really important questions. And I think the discipline overall is, is doing a, a great an admirable job of tackling them. Cesar, are you seeing this? Second? So how are you seeing this? No, yeah, I do think like in, in economics, you find like amazing work and amazing people. So that's, that's no doubt, you know, you do, you do find that a lot, you know, uh, but going back to kind of like your, your original question, you know, if we think about, you know, also the disciplines, not in, in terms of kind of like the, the model of human nature that they subscribe to, you know, economics, whether we want it or not, is kind of connected a little bit to money and money, whether you want it or not, is a technology. So in some sense, it is a field that is defined by the study of a technology, if you look at it from that foundational concept, you know? Uh, so I, I do think that uh, the study of technology and economics are intertwined, you know, from the beginning, since money is, is a technology. And, and, and uh, in, in some sense, that's, I think, maybe why economics has been a successful field from which to study the effects of technology in society, at least, you know, when it, when it relates to like productive activities. And what do you think will be most important for economists to know about the currently disruptive technologies as AI? I think they need to learn how to use some of these methods themselves. Some of the coolest papers that I see have combined more traditional techniques with machine learning to go poke at the things that economists are interested in. So, you know, 
economics is a, is a really expanding discipline. The toolkit is getting bigger. That makes Cesar's point more relevant. Training up to become a first-rate economist, this is actually a long, really intense discipleship to get your arms around the tools. Uh, so it's, it's going to take time and it's going to not be open to everybody. Now, we can all benefit from knowing a little bit of basic economics, but professional economist is kind of daunting these days, I think. Yeah, I think that further, further in this series, we'll also have an interview with a group of basic computer scientists that are really applying the methods of economics of reverse game theory to really find basically how to build markets and such. So that will, I think that that, that basically listeners that are, or viewers that are interested in this, they will get a, a bit of an idea on that. She's how yeah, you I, see I agree this. With, with, with Andy. And, and the way that I see this is that um, math is not science and that's a good thing. And, and the reason that that's a good thing is that mathematical methods usually, you know, tend to play the field, they go around. You know? ah. so, so the idea of, you know, like dynamical equations, for instance, you know, which, you know, it's, it's the, it, it was very popular, you know, in, in classical physics, you know, and that's the, how you solve systems of dynamics and kinematics, then, you know, was adopted in economics and models of economic growth and couple differential equations and so forth. Then, you know, statistics, you know, made it into economics. And I think over the last 20, 30 years, this empirical revolution has been an statistics revolution, you know, uh, that has been very important. But I do think that machine learning is something that's gonna contribute to a change too, because it provides a lot of tools that are very interesting to look in particularly at macro problems, right? Machine learning excels when there's a lot of data, you know, and you're trying to understand macro phenomena and you're trying to, to predict and, and look at trends and so forth. The work that I've done, one way that I communicated, for example, if I'm talking with computer scientists, is like, hey, what I've been doing is applying machine learning methods to understand the economy at the macro scale. The product space is a recommender system, and economic complexity is dimensionality reduction applied you know, to a specialization matrices. These are tools from machine learning that when we apply to economics, they also work, you know, and they should, because that's the nice thing about math. That, you know, dynamical systems, they work in physics, they work in chemistry, they work in ecology, and they work in economics. And by the same token, we should find machine learning tools to be useful in all of these domains. So I do think that there is an opportunity now to expand, you know, the way that we look at economics or, or to answer some of the same problems through a different perspective, and maybe even discover some new problems by using this new toolbox that machine learning and AI are bringing to the table. So considering time, we have about five minutes left. I think we have to move towards the closing question. And we do have some quite a, a few minutes for the answers there. And we always have the same one in this series. And that is, if there's one thing you could say for students economics uh, watching today, what will that be? And I think it makes most sense to do it in the order of the first questions as well. So first for Anna. Go investigate real world problems, right? We, we have the, the discipline of economics has a really important way of looking at the world and a way of thinking through questions The the, you know, the, the mathematical, the statistical toolkit, the technological toolkit for investigating those questions is getting better. The data available are getting better and richer all the time. Go, go work on an actual question that somebody out there cares about and to, and spin up on all the latest methods, all the latest and greatest papers that have been written uh, to serve as a model for how you should go about doing that work. And do you have any uh, any recommendations how to best find the real world problems to tackle? No, 
<laughs> I have no idea how to do that. Just um, I, I've stumbled across mine by luck. It feels to me all the time. I think I think it's the same for me. Cesar, what is for you basically the one thing? If you could say one thing to students in economics watching day, what will that be? I would say, be nice. And the reason for that is that uh, if you want to engage in a creative environment, you have to let bad ideas grow, mix, mutate to the point that sometimes bad ideas become good ideas. So one thing that I, 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 I did learn, you know, like at a place like, like the Media Lab that work in this intersection between technology and the arts, you know, was that some of the most successful entrepreneurs that I met, you know, and these were people that, that, you know, made it big. They made, you know, like video games that sold, you know, millions of copies and they were loaded. They were, you know, some of the least rational people that I met and some of the most emotional people that I met. And they were kind of like, I want to do something that made people feel like this. And they would come up with like a lot of weird, bad ideas. But once in a while, when they would get a good one, it would resonate with people and they would be able to execute it with that finesse, you know, that artists have, you know, that allows them to do things that enjoy wide adoption, accept and, and, and they develop fans, you know, at the end, you know, like the consumers of a product, if they're fans, it's fantastic, you know, so that's, that's usually what you want. And, 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 and I realized to kind of like think a little bit differently. I come from the natural sciences, which are very analytical. I think that makes me similar to economists. We tend to be very critical, you know, and, and, and try to sort of like find the holes on the problems and, 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 and argue them. You know, but I realized that a lot of what we like in the world and what we study when we study the economy comes from a very different breed of people, you know, that are creative because they live in this environment, you know, that is emotional, they're nice to each other, and they let kind of like bad ideas have sex until they have good children. You know, and that's something that I think is important for creativity and when you manage teams in particular, because a lot of the times, you know, like you may cut the wings, you know, too early if, if you are too critical when things are not yet fully formed. And they can surprise you if you let them grow to their next stage. So be nice. I think basically the, the, the combination of to pursue your crazy ideas, but to be kind to people is a beautiful way to end today's interview. So I want to thank both of you profoundly for your time. Uh, it was a beautiful interview and we look forward to having the other viewers again here next week. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks, Andrew. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Always good, my friend. I've got to run. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Thank Have you. Have fun there. Bye. Bye-bye.